It's time for Truth Unfiltered with Pastor Chad Harvey. Pastor Chad is the teaching pastor at Cross Assembly Church in Raleigh, leading you to a deeper understanding of the Bible by putting the scriptures in context, emphasizing how God's Word applies to our daily lives. We invite you to join us and allow the Holy Spirit to bring Truth Unfiltered to you. Now, here's Pastor Chad. Hey, do y'all know what a, um, do you know what a, a writer is like when a celebrity comes to town to perform? You know what a writer is? It's kind of like, here's our expectations. I'll come to your town, but you better do this. A few years ago, Beyonce's um, a member of her entourage leaked part of her sur- uh, supposed writer. And it's kind of interesting. When Beyonce comes to town, she wants all crew members to wear 100% cotton, no synthetic fabrics. She wants chilled alkaline water served with $900 titanium straws. Bathrooms must have brand new toilet seats and red toilet paper at each venue. Uh, she needs to have hand-carved ice balls after each show to cool her throat. Katy Perry, part of her rider is that the driver who picks her up must not talk to her or even look at her. And who can forget the rock group Van Halen? God rest David Van Halen's soul, but uh, Van Halen, part of their rider was, when we come to a venue, we want a big bowl of M&Ms with all the brown M&Ms picked out of it. Now, in case you think I'm just making fun of the sake of the world, I know Christian celebrity pastors who are the same way. Hey, I'll come to town, but you better put me up in a five-star hotel. I'll come to town, but you better fly me first class. And one of the reasons why I love nativity scenes is because it reminds me that when God came to town, he said, you don't have to put me up in a five-star hotel. A barn will do for me. When God came to town, he didn't say, I need a king-size bed. He said, a feeding trough will do for me. When God came to town, he said, I don't need an entourage with bodyguards and assistants. He surrounded himself with a bunch of simple blue-collar people like you and me. When I look at a nativity scene, I see the humility and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. My wife collects nativity scenes. In fact, uh, we just got one. She loves to get them from around the world. One of our missionaries from uh, Kyrgyzstan just sent her a nativity scene. And in every nativity scene, you have the angels, you have the wise men, you have the shepherds, you have Mary, you have Joseph. And today we're going to talk about the wise men, which ironically don't even belong at a nativity scene. And you'll see that here in just a moment. So turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, here's what we don't know about the wise men, okay? Number one, we don't know how many there were. Traditionally, we say there are three wise men because there are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But how many of y'all have a cheap family member that'll come to a thing and they never bring a gift, okay? So you, there may have been more than, than three wise men. In fact, there probably were more than three wise men. We don't know how many there were, and we don't even know Uh, Where they came from, it just says somewhere east of Jerusalem. So instead of singing that Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are, we should be singing we kings of indeterminate number from somewhere due east of Jerusalem are. Okay, I know it doesn't have the rhythm. 
But we, we do have maybe a hint of where these men were from. Um, the Babylonian and then the Persian Empire had a special class of uh, court advisors called the Magi or the wise men. And these men had esoteric knowledge. They were special counselors to the emperor. Um, they felt they could predict the future. They could read the, the stars. And uh, these men often said that the, the spirit world would speak to them through dreams, which is why it's kind of interesting in Matthew, I think it's 2.21, God warns these wise men to go back a different way through a dream. He spoke the language that they would have understood. Um, 600 years before this happened, in Babylon, there's a young refugee named Daniel, and Daniel is elevated to the heights of the Babylonian Empire, and he is actually called the chief magi, or the chief wise man, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 9, and in chapter 5, verse 11. This is 600 years before Jesus, and so um, we're not sure, but, but Daniel may have been a, kind of a predecessor of these wise men that came to visit Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this is many scholars say these wise men or these magi came from a certain tribe. Uh, some believe that the descendants of that tribe are the Kurds in northern uh, Iraq, but they came from a certain tribe. And so Daniel is elevated to the chief of the wise men. You can imagine these guys saying, wait a second, he's not from our tribe. He's a, a Jewish refugee from another land, and now you've put him over us, and they're jealous. And that may be why in Daniel chapter 6, they, they uh, plot a strategy to have him killed and thrown into the lion's den. Um, Daniel had some incredible writings as a wise man or as a magi, and he left those writings. And we think that 600 years later, the people who have these writings say, Daniel predicted 600 years ago that about this time, a king would be born in Israel. Now look at verse 2. They came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now this is probably an insult because the Persian Empire at this time is in conflict with Israel. And on the throne in Israel, there's a madman named Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled Israel. He ruled the Jewish people, but he wasn't even a Jew. He's very sensitive about that. He's an Idumean. And, um, and so he's very sensitive, and people would make fun of him because you're a Jewish leader, but you're not even a Jew. And so the wise men come, and they say, no, no, we're not looking for you. We're looking for the one who's born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, what did the wise men see in the east that drew them to see Jesus? We're not sure, but there's a, a re recent a theory that kind of is fascinating. It sounds kooky and weird, but some legitimate scholars are actually giving this some credence. Scholars like Dr. Michael Heiser from the University of Wisconsin. And here's the theory. In Revelation chapter 12, John, who's writing the book of Revelation, he stops and he says, let me tell you a quick story. And he stops in Revelation 12 and he says, I see a sign in the heaven and he gives us the Christmas story in the middle of the book of Revelation. He says, now I want you to remember these elements. A woman clothed in the sun with the moon at her feet, 12 stars around her head, gives birth to a baby, and the dragon tried to devour the baby, but the dragon wasn't able to do it. Now, we know the story. It's the, the woman is Mary, the, the baby is Jesus, the dragon is Satan. Jesus is prevented uh, by God from Satan devouring him. But I want you to think about those elements. A woman clothed in the sun, that's an astronomical term, with the moon at her feet, 
12 stars around her head and a dragon. Now, this is not weird. You can find this in uh, any kind of computer program that deals with stars in astronomy like Norton's Star Atlas. There's one particular night where all those elements actually took place physically in the sky. In the constellation Virgo, the Virgin, the sun was setting, and so the, the sun was, uh, was at her midsection. She's clothed with the sun. The moon was rising, and the moon was at her feet. And in the Middle East, 12 stars were visible around her head. And um, the uh, Scorpio and Libra, the constellations, are visible. And in those days, there were one constellation known in the ancient world as the dragon. So you have a woman, sun in her midsection, moon at her feet, 12 stars around the head, dragon. And that doesn't happen all the time. It happened very, very rarely. And the only time during the time of Jesus that happened was September 11th, 3 BC, from 6.15 p.m. until 7.45 p.m. And so there is, there's a theory out there that what John is describing are the celestial events that took place on the night that Jesus was born. And if that's the case, now y'all know he wasn't born on December 25th. Y'all do realize that, right? Okay. So if that's the case, Jesus may have been born on September 11th, 3 BC. If that's the case, on that very night in the constellation Leo, the lion, which is equated by the ancient world with the nation of Israel, there's a conjunction with Jupiter, which is known as the king of the stars, or the, we know it's a planet, but it looked like a star. There's a conjunction with Jupiter and uh, Regulus, which is known as the little prince, and it looks like one star. And so if you're in the Middle East, you could say to yourself, wow, in the lion, in Judah, in Israel, a king, a prince has been born. And one more thing, if that's the case, if September 3rd or September 11th, 3 BC, is the night on which Jesus was born on the Jewish calendar, that's Tishri 1, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the new year, which is the day on which in the Old Testament kings were crowned in Israel. And so the, the wise men see something and, and they know something significant has happened. And look at this. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. Catholics, not them. He worshiped him, Jesus. Now, we don't uh, think that the wise men were actually there on the night of Jesus' birth. We think they came later, maybe in a, several months, maybe in a year, maybe enough to two years later. Why? Because verse 11, it says they did not come to the house or the stable. It says they come to the house. Do you see that? So Jesus is no longer in the stable. He's now in the house. And in verse 11, it says they visited the child, not the baby. That's a different word in the Greek language. And then later, Herod, hoping to kill Jesus, says, I want everybody aged two years old and younger in Bethlehem to, to be killed. And so this may have been up to two years after the night of the nativity. But I want you to see this. These wise men took a lot of risks to come and worship Jesus. If they are from Persia, they're coming from at least a thousand miles away through dangerous territory, bad weather, bandits. It takes them a long time to get there. They went through a lot to go worship Jesus Christ. Now, can I get on my little high horse and my throw a little hissy fit for just a second here? 
Here's my only concern. Now, if you're watching online today, I understand you have to do it. I get it. It's going to be over. But here's my only concern about this whole coronavirus thing. When this is over, some of y'all are going to think it's perfectly acceptable to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in your bathrobe in front of your computer eating Cheerios. That is not acceptable. That's not worship. Y'all do realize that's not worship, right? And I am amazed at how the church in America will defend our guns, We'll defend our right to choose. We'll defend everything, but we won't defend our right to worship. We have just folded like a cheap tent here in America. It doesn't make any sense to me. In fact, listen to this. In Oregon, they just legalized heroin and cocaine. So a family of four in Portland can now snort lines of cocaine together, inject heroin, and they're not breaking the law. But if they go and join 20 other, 25 other Christians and worship without a mask, they could be taken off to prison. Explain that to me. We're now living in a country where you can do cocaine in your home, but you can't go worship Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. In California, you can go to a strip club, you can go to an abortion clinic, You can go to a marijuana dispensary, and it's okay. But if you go to church, you can be fined and put in jail. And these wise men said, I don't care what it costs us. I don't care how long it takes us. I don't care what we have to go through. That's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and we're going to go worship him. And these are pagans who say that. And when they finally get to Jesus, it sounds like a Pentecostal worship service. It's loud. Do you see that in verse 10? They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And it was physical. They physically, verse 11 says, fall down before Jesus. It's loud, it's active, and it's physical. Some of y'all may be new to Pentecostalism. This may be your first time at RFA Church. And you look at these people singing loud and jumping up and down and raising your hand. And you're saying, what's their problem? Here's their problem. We were headed toward a devil's hell for all eternity. And that man saved our soul, forgave us our sins, adopted us as a child of God, said, I am yours and you are mine and I love you with an everlasting love and we can't help it. We can't keep it inside. That's our problem. These pagan wise men from Persia could teach the American church something about worship. And when they had opened their treasures... They presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's talk about that. Gold, traditionally, was a gift that you would give a king. A king's crown would be made of gold. If you went to visit royalty, you would bring gold as a gift. These wise men knew Jesus was a king. Verse 2, it says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? I've told you this before. When we say Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is this. He is king, he is owner, he is ruler, he calls the shots. I don't get to define what marriage is. Jesus gets to define what marriage is because he's king. I don't get to define what sexual ethics are. He gets to define it because he's king. He calls the shots. When it it says they gave him gold, they recognize Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is the owner. In fact, I've told you this before. Every major religion has a motto, okay? Okay. The motto for the Jewish religion is called the Shema. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The motto for Islam 
is there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. But for 2,000 years, the motto of Christianity is this. Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is Lord. He is God. And somehow, these people recognize that. Tell you something. Nobody wants to go to hell. I, in fact, you know what? I can go anywhere in the world and I can, uh, I can lead thousands and thousands of people to Jesus. I can say to a big crowd, how many of y'all do not want to sizzle for all eternity in immense pain? Raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. Then repeat this after me. They repeat it after me and done. We've got it. You understand Jesus Christ is more than just a savior who saves us from hell. Before he's savior, he's Lord. That means when I surrender my life to Jesus, I now say, I am not in charge. This isn't my family. That's not my car. That's not my house. Jesus is yours. I surrender it all to you. Jesus is Lord. In the book of Acts, Jesus is called Savior two times. He is called Lord 92 times. The emphasis is before anything else, he is king. Listen to me. Jesus Christ doesn't want to be resident in your life. He wants to be president of your life. He wants to take charge and control. And I don't know how they did it, but these disciples, or probably these wise men understood that that little child in that house being held on the lap of a peasant teenage girl, he's Lord, he's king. Secondly, they give him frankincense. Do you see that? Frankincense was a sap from a tree, very expensive sap. Frankincense is mentioned 17 times in the Bible, and it's almost always connected with the priesthood. Exodus 30, verses 30 through 34, there's a sacred perfume with a special recipe made out of frankincense that only the priests could burn. And so what these wise men understand is, not only is he Lord, is he king, but he's also a priest. 11 times in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called our high priest. You know what a priest does? A priest stands between you and God, okay? We only have one priest. His name is Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can go, listen to me, because Jesus Christ is our priest, we can go directly into the throne room of God anytime we want. And again, I'm not trying to bash my Catholic friends, but you don't have to go through Mary and you don't have to go through the saints because you belong to Jesus Christ and you're now an adopted child of God. You can go directly to the presence of God without any other intermediary. And again, what blows my mind are these pagans from Persia recognize this. This guy's going to be a priest. He's going to allow people to come into the very presence of God. And that's why they give him frankincense. You know, I was reading about um, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had a kid, I think he was like six, seven, eight years old, named Tad, a little boy when, when Lincoln was in the White House. And it used to make his cabinet mad because Tad, this little boy, anytime he wanted to, could walk into the Oval Office. If they're in the middle of a cabinet meeting, sometimes the door would come open and little Tad would run right in. And they're like, do something. He said, no, this is my son. He can can come anytime he wants. In fact, there's this one little story. When the cabinet was meeting, it's during the Civil War, they're discussing strategy, they're in the Oval Office, the cabinet's getting kind of tense, and the door pops open, and Lincoln's little boy runs in. And he's got this um, toy soldier doll that he loved. He named him Jack. And he interrupted his dad, and he says, hey, Dad, he's I got a problem. Lincoln said, what? He said, my my, uh, soldier, Jack, he committed a war crime and he needs to be shot. (laughs) And he said, he does. He said, yeah. He said, dad, I don't want want Jack to die. Could you write him a presidential pardon? (laughs) 
And so Lincoln stopped his cabinet meeting and he writes a presidential pardon for Jack right there on the spot and gives it to his little boy. Now that made the cabinet mad, but what Lincoln was saying is, I don't care who y'all are, this is my boy and he can come into our presence anytime you want. Listen to me. God is your father if you're a born again believer. And God says, you know, I'm making the sun rise. I'm keeping the planets in alignment. I'm deposing this king. I'm raising up that king, but I'm never too busy for you to come into my presence anytime you want and pray and talk and fellowship. Why? Because Jesus is our priest. And finally, they give baby Jesus some myrrh, which is kind of surprising. Myrrh is referred to about 17 times in the Bible. The first time myrrh is offered to Jesus is here in this passage when he's a little baby, a little kid. The second time is when he's hanging on a cross, dying. And they offer him myrrh because they felt that myrrh maybe had a slight pain-relieving quality. Isn't that interesting? His life begins with an offer of myrrh, and his life ends with an offer of myrrh. Myrrh basically was an embalming fluid. In John 19, 39, when Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea brings 100 pounds of myrrh to embalm Jesus. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Why, why, if you're, why would you do that? I understand the gold, okay? I understand the frankincense, why do you bring embalming fluid to a baby shower? I mean, can you imagine that? I got the pampers, I got the wipes, I got the powder, I got the embalming fluid. It just doesn't make sense, does it? But somehow these wise men understood gold, yeah, he's king. Frankincense, yeah, he's priest. But myrrh, he's our sacrifice. He's going to die for us one day. And they recognized that. And in bringing this myrrh to Jesus, they recognized that baby was born to die. And beloved, it's kind of interesting that in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, when Isaiah is describing the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ comes back to rule the world, y'all believe Jesus is coming back? Isaiah 60, when he comes back to rule the world, I think it's verse 6, it says, wise men will come and bring him gold and frankincense but they don't mention myrrh. Why? Because his death is in the past. He died once for all humanity. It's over with. Now, here's the significance of this. And I don't, wherever I'm at, if you're on TV or Facebook, I need you to listen to me. Without Jesus' death on the cross, without understanding that he died in your place, you have no hope of eternal life. Well, pastor, there are many ways to God. Listen to me. I believe all roads lead to God. We're all going to go to God one day. The question is, once we stand before God, what's going to happen to us after that? I don't care what religion you are. One day you will stand before the God of the universe. The question is, when you stand before him, have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? And Jesus makes it very clear. If you haven't, God is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And it breaks my heart to think there are people listening to me who do not know what's going to happen to them when they die, I was, um, I don't know if we were there or somebody was telling us about this, but there's an antique shop and there's this, I think maybe one of our family members was telling about this. So a kid was running around, this little brat was just, parents couldn't control him. And he hits this thing after his parents had told him to stop running and he knocks over like a vase, a real expensive vase. And it shatters. And the parents say to the um, shop owner, 
I'm so sorry. We, we, it was an accident. And the shop owner says, I know, but you're going to have to pay for it. He said, but it was an accident. Yeah, I know, but you're going to have to pay for it. No, we're not paying for it. <laughs> the shop owner says, look, either you're going to have to pay for it or I'm going to have to pay for it. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. And you and I are sinners. We have sinned, every one of us, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the holy God of that universe looks at that sin and says, somebody's got to pay for this. Well, pastor, the big guy and I, we, we have this understanding. Okay, If you're calling the God of the universe who created all things the big guy, you probably don't know him as well as you think you know him. The big guy and I have an understanding. No, no, no. God says, somebody's got to pay for your sin. Either you're going to pay for it or somebody else is going to pay for it. And praise God, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth and he paid for it. He paid for your sin. And now when you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a messed up person. But I believe you died on the cross for my sins and I surrender my life to you. At that moment, Jesus Christ takes control of your life. He scatters your sin as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the deepest part of the sea and puts a no fishing sign on top of it. He says, it is done. It is finished. You're forgiven. And now you're a child of the most high God. Somehow, somehow those wise men understood that. Beloved, as I read the Christmas story, and I love love Christmas, but I can't remember what uh, Talladega Talladega Nights or something like that, they kept calling Jesus little baby Jesus. Okay, some of y'all think, he's he's just little baby Jesus. He's this nice, cuddly little baby. And then he grows up to be a nice white guy with his hair slicked back, holding sheep all day. He's just a really nice guy. That's not Jesus. In fact, H.G. Wells, the British author, said, quote, I am an historian and I'm not a believer, but I must confess that as a historian, this penniless preacher from Nazareth is easily the most dominant figure in all of human history. That's Jesus. for today's Truth Unfiltered broadcast. We invite you to join us again next time for more great teaching from Pastor Chad Harvey, teaching pastor at Cross Assembly Church of Raleigh. I believe gathering together is an integral part of the life of a Christian. We're meant to live in community with others. What drew me to Cross Assembly is the community, the fellowship. I was eager to get that family feel and to have that moment of coming into church and just knowing these are my people, these are the people of God. And one way that I felt that at Cross was through groups. Being able to come here and feeling like that group of people, they were my people, they were my family. Groups are important because it is a way to learn how to be the church and not just go to church. It's one of those things that definitely makes you feel a sense of belonging, understanding that you're not alone. One of the most impactful semesters we've had has been a semester where almost everyone in our group was going through big life changes. There was sickness, loss of job. As one person shared, we prayed. Then another person was encouraged and they shared and we prayed. Throughout that semester, we saw God move in amazing ways. We have this saying that friends become family. That's what we've experienced through gathering together. You're finding people 
who are serious about their faith, who want to grow deeper, who also are looking out for you, like a church family supposed to look out for each other. My relationship with God has increased dramatically. Being connected to the group really allows people to challenge me. That general accountability for my prayer life and kind of checking that. My favorite aspect of groups is serving. Serving is really a chance to humble yourself. You're no longer focused inwardly. You're no longer focused on your life, your problems. You're focused on how can God use me to bless this other person. The more we can get together and align with the vision of building and sending out those Spirit-filled agents, the more our community will see the true love of Jesus. When you serve together with someone, it not only helps you to no longer be inward-focused, but it can also strengthen a bond between the friend that you're serving with because both of you are humbling yourselves in order to help someone else. It can create memories that you'll never forget. If you are not in a group, I strongly encourage you to be a part of the family. You don't want to miss these opportunities to grow together, to gather together, to fellowship, and to serve one another. If you would like more information about Pastor Chad or Cross Assembly, visit crossassembly.org. Again, that's crossassembly.org. You're always welcome to visit us at any of our locations for Sunday morning services. You'll find locations and service times on our website. To support this ministry, text CROSS to 45777. That's CROSS to 45777. Join us again next time for more teaching with Pastor Chad Harvey, teaching pastor of Cross Assembly Church in Raleigh, and more of God's truth unfiltered. Unfiltered.